Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, let me kind of catch up to speed. We had Steve Mayo here last week bring the word, which is nice for me to sit and enjoy, take it in. Uh, his passage actually dealt with our theme, which is walk worthy. And he, he spoke about being compelled to walk worthy. And we want to kind of pick up from there. We're in chapter 2, verse 13. Here's simply the title today. It's God's Word Works. God's Word Works. Basically, he says to the Thessalonians, you receive from us not what you, other people think it is, not the word of men, but as what it is, the word of God. And he basically says, it's worked in you. Uh, we want to look at this idea that God's word works. When you read it, when you apply it, when you believe it, when you give yourself over to it, God's word works. Our hope as we walk through this, this book and walk through this section, I would love to see a generation, my hope and our desire is that um, we'd be a generation that loves the word of God, that studies the word of God that gives ourselves over to the word of God. I think sometimes we can view the Bible or reading scripture as just this is what you ought to do. I should do this. This is good for me. It's like eating my vegetables. I would love to see this become completely different. I would love, to be, I would love there to be a passion amongst our generation for the word of God. How do we crave it? How do we long for it? How does it just become a part of who we are? If someone were to cut us that we bleed scripture, like how does it just be in us? Um, I would love for this to just be something we can just crave and just long for. Uh, David in the Psalms said this. He says, For you, God, have magnified your word above all your name. Other translators or translations say, You've magnified your name and your word above all. God takes his word incredibly serious. He says, I've magnified my word above my name, or my name and my word above all. The idea is that God places a high priority on his word. We would love to be a generation that says, You know what? We're going to get back to this book. People maybe want to get away from this or maybe even want to reinterpret this. We want to know, God, what, what are you saying? How do we actually do the, the hard work of exegeting a passage, of understanding it, of living it out, of applying it, of actually saying, no, God's word brings life. I love what Jesus said. Jesus my words are spirit and they are life. And we want this to be life for our, for our, just our body. Again, our hope, my hope is that we'd have a generation of people who love the word of God who will fight for the word of God, who will not be ashamed of it, that this is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, that this is bread for the soul, bread for the spirit, and that we'd crave this. I'm very thankful for just a, a, a church going up back home that I feel like loved the word of God. You know, from a young age, maybe I misinterpreted that even at times. It was something like I thought I had to do, I had to read. I remember reading through Genesis, through Ezekiel, as like a high schooler, and I go, what the heck did I just read? I have no idea what I read. And I kind of just did it out of duty, and then something changed where I go, I just can't get enough of this. Like, this book is everything. And so we want to get back to this. I love what Paul said to the Colossians. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That is our hope, that the word of Christ would dwell in us richly. So in some ways, as we walk through this passage, Paul says, he makes a big claim. You receive this word, not that it's from men, but it's from God. And so we're going to look at how this word is God's word. It's divine. It's inspired by God. And so I want to look at this. There'll be some information. I hope you can take notes. I hope you can follow along. It might be some kind of like, let's kind of look at this in, in an apologetic type of way where we want to be trained well in this, like what, what makes this book different. But I hope it's just not just information. I hope that that information transforms our heart. I hope it's something that does something to us where we get excited, like, yes, this book is very unique. It's very different. And this is God's word to us today. So uh, we want to respond like the Thessalonians did. So why don't we read this? It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll just read verse 13 through 20, and uh, we'll pray and look at this more in depth. Let's read. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul is very appreciative of this church, different than the tone in Corinth. 
he says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. We'll get into that. Verse 17, he says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown or boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. You, you see, as Steve pointed out last week, the father heart of, of Paul here, kind of that motherly instinct that Paul actually even addressed last week, a different tone here today. Uh, a different tone, I think, for the Thessalonians than just the Corinthians. And my hope is that we can learn from this church. My hope is that we receive the word as God's word, as they did. So let's pray. Let's just kind of invite the Lord to do that. Say, God, we just want to receive your word today. So let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you. Thank you for this time that we do get just every Sunday to pause, to slow down, to just sing, to worship, to be reminded that, Jesus, you are the king, that you are the savior, that this is your church, that you build the church, that Jesus, you do that through your word and through your spirit. And so, Spirit, we just ask that you would write your word on our heart, that we would not just hear and, le and really learn in new information, but that your Holy Spirit would take what we've, we've just read, and God, we take on and develop and just adopt the same heart that the Thessalonians had, that we would receive your word, which is divine. God, that we'd read it differently, that, God, it would be just satisfying to just our every need. So thank you, Jesus. We ask that you'd speak and move and that we just want to hear from you now in your name. Amen. You know, I, I hate the feeling you get when you buy something new and you open it up or you try to use it and it doesn't work. I know this has happened to all of us at some point in time. You have something, you're excited, you want to use it, and you're like, it's just not working. Uh, a few months ago for my son's sixth birthday, uh, I thought it'd be fun. You know, it's kind of that age of life where I, I would buy him some Nerf guns. I'm like, okay, he's kind of getting that age. It'd be fun to have a Nerf. I don't know. It's probably more for me than him. He's very excited about the Nerf guns. So I got him like the shotgun kind of Nerf gun looking thing. Like it kind of was like a sawed off shotgun. It's pretty cool. Uh, and then I got me this like mega daddy, even better Nerf gun. Um, it was this giant yellow. It can like snipe. It can do everything. It has like, I don't know, that, like a clip where you can like put a clip of Nerf. It's just amazing. I was so excited. So, you know, it's a sixth birthday. I'm like, we got Nerf guns. And so I have the, the better one on his birthday, and I give him a pretty good one. And we go to have our Nerf gun fight, and he's like, his shoot's pretty straight, pretty hard. And I go to use mine, he's like, cock it back, like it's pretty big. And I go to shoot mine, and it's like, pew. Like, you know, it just like barely goes. And I was like, oh, that might not be right. I probably put it in wrong. Like, readjust everything and do it. It's like, pew. It was so pathetic. 
And so obviously I took his gun and said, this is my gun now. No, I'm kidding. Um, basically it turned into him just shooting me with his Nerf gun. I just, you know, I didn't have it. It didn't work. I was like, it doesn't work. And I hate that feeling of like, I bought this. It's new. It doesn't work. Even my daughter who's two years old, if she can't get something to work, she kind of has that. Like it's frustrating to say, like if she tries something out and walk up to me and goes, dad, it doesn't work. Like it doesn't work. And she gets mad. There's something very just frustrating when something you believe should work doesn't work. I think a lot of the world wants to know, does it work? I think when people approach the Bible and look at the Bible, they go, but does it really work? This is something I've talked to a lot of people about. They're like, I don't know if it works. I don't know if this whole Christianity thing works. Your life, my life, not so different. Does it work? I, I've noticed when I've talked to people about that question, like it's almost more of a pragmatic question, does this work? I think what they mean is, will this make my life better? Will this make me better? You know, will it, will just, will it make things better in my life? You know, and yes, to an extent, right? Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and life more abundantly. I do believe it works in that sense where it's like, yeah, it, it will make your life better. It will make your marriage better, your home life better. I do believe that, absolutely. But I almost think it's like the wrong question. I think it's the wrong focus. Not just will it make me better, does it work in the way I want it to work, but I think we got to realize, no, this, this isn't to work the way you want it to work. This book makes dead men alive. It sets captives free. It pulls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. It gives us eternal life. It's a book that describes that though your circumstances might not look very great, that you might not have what the world would call happiness, you can have this eternal and internal peace and joy evermore. See, it might not work the way the world wants it to work, but it works. And I'll say, and then some. Because I do believe Jesus has come to give us life and life more abundantly. I do believe, yes, maybe the way you're asking, sure, but I think it does more than even what you're asking for. I think it will give you a peace that will surpass all understanding and it will satisfy the longings of your heart that you thought something else would satisfy, but only the eternal Jesus and the internal word of God can satisfy that eternal longing in your heart. Yes, it works. But again, I think people want to know, does it really work? And here's what's happening in Thessalonia. Paul is saying, it worked. He's like, you received the word of God and it worked. It did something in you. You are our joy, our crown, our rejoicing. Like, we love the work of God that's happening among you. And here's why this work is happening among you. When you heard the word of God, you received it as it was, the word of God. And you, you, you became imitators of all these churches. Like, it worked in you. It did something in you that was completely different. So as we kind of like stand back and try to get the big picture of what Paul is saying here, especially in our verses 13 through 20, I want you to see that Paul is saying, this is God's word and it worked and it worked in you. And let me say this, it still works today. Like I really want you to know it still works today. It can work in our lives. The Holy Spirit wants to take the word of God to produce the life of God in us. It works. So five points as we walk through our text, as we kind of like look at this more in depth. Here's the first one, like five points. Yeah, I'm sorry, five. Uh, first was this, this book is God's word. Number two, it works effectively in you if you believe it. Number three, people try to hinder the message. Four, Satan tries to hinder the message. Five, the end is great to those who believe. All right, here's the first point. This book is God's word. This is what Paul says in verse 13. Would you look down? Read with me again in verse 13. Paul says in verse 13, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. All right, number one, this book 
is God's word. I know that's a big claim. I know you've heard this, but I do want to talk about this. This book, obviously, we believe clearly was 100% written by human authors, but 100% inspired by God. It's interesting how those two things exist. I was thinking about this this week. You know, what we believe about Jesus is very unique. We believe Jesus is fully God, fully man. We call that the hypostatic union. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. Jesus is not 50% God and 50% man combined. He's 100% God and 100% man. You know, he's born of a virgin, born of woman, but in, in, given by the Holy Spirit. We believe in, in really a unique doctrine of the hypostatic union that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. Same too, in a similar mindset, we believe this is 100% written by man, but 100% inspired and divine of God. Just very unique. Just like Jesus calls himself the word, he is the word of God, 100% man, 100% God. We also believe this is 100% written by man, 100% inspired by God. And I want you to see that. Uh, so like, what is the Bible? Like, let's just look kind of practically for a second. Uh, the Bible is a collection of books, right? It's a small library. It really tells the story of the Jewish people. It kind of immerses from the, the tribe and the nation of Israel. It's very interesting what the Bible is. I mean, you think about uh, just the context, how it was written, where it was written, just the, the idea of the Bible. The Bible is broken up, as you guys know, into two major parts. We call it the Old Testament or the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Uh, the Jewish people call the Bible the Bible. If you guys know that, if you go to Israel, they talk about the Bible, right? But that doesn't include the new covenant to them. That doesn't cl- include Matthew through Revelation. When they speak of the Bible, they speak of this, this idea of the word Tanakh. Everyone say Tanakh. Tanakh is really an acronym, right? The T stands for Torah. The N stands for Nevi'im. And the K for Ketuvim. The idea is the Tanakh. It's the Torah. It's, it's uh, Genesis through Exodus. It's the uh, Nevi'im, which is basically the prophets. And the Ketuvim is the writings. It's the Psalms and other various passages. That is the Bible to them. That is their Bible. Then we have what we call just the New Covenant or the New Testament. This is Matthew through Revelation. There's also different genre, different writing styles. You have the four Gospels. You have Acts, which is kind of recording the early church history. You have Epistles. And then you have the Book of Revelation, which is a completely different genre than everything else. And you look at the Bible and you go, wow, this is a really unique book. It's very different. Actually, I don't know if you know this about the Bible. 43% of the Bible is narrative, also including parables. 33% is poetry and poetic. And 24% is what we call prose discourse, which just basically means doctrine. It's the epistles. The Bible is very unique. And so we need to study and approach the Bible the way it's written. We're studying right now an epistle, which is prose discourse. We're studying doctrine for how to live life. That's what we're going through. Now, the Bible obviously makes a really big claim that frustrates almost everyone, even Christians. You might struggle with this. The Bible claims to be the Word of God, like divine, inspired, given by God. That's an incredibly big claim. Now, I I don't think I'll fully get into this. I have a couple recommended resources, but I want to actually break this down a little bit. There is, I believe, internal evidence for that and external evidence for that. I think we got to be careful when we use the word prove. A lot of times, like we say, we can prove the Bible is the word of God. Usually that word prove is kind of held in that scientific realm or term. I think we say that evidence is in favor of this book being divine and inspired by God. That there's absolutely nothing like it. Ancient texts, ancient manuscripts, what we have, it's nothing like this. So let's just kind of break this down. A couple things, I know you guys have heard this, but let's walk through this. The Bible is completely uh, uh, unique, and it has a very interesting unity to it. So there's unity and uniqueness to the Bible. Unity and uniqueness. I know you guys know this, but let's just kind of back up again. This book is 66 books written by 40 different authors in three different languages on three different continents 
over a span of about 1,600 years. And when you think about the way it's written, it's written from all different types of people, incredibly wealthy people, kings, poor people. You have diplomats. You have shepherds. I mean, it's written by all kinds of people. Now, when you think about this book, when I say unity, and you go, okay, 1,600 years, 40 different authors, but yet we all believe that there's one central theme to this. There's one hero, Jesus, one villain, Satan, one thread, the scarlet thread of redemption. We would say, even though it's pretty you know, diverse in authors, in context, in parts of the world where it's written, there's one unified message. If I were to try to get 40 different people over 15, 1600 years to write a similar thing, it'd be pretty unlikely, it'd be very difficult. The Bible is incredibly unified in its message. But I also want to think about this, it's unique. There's a longevity to the Bible. I mean, think about what we're holding. Think about how many men throughout the history of the world have tried to kill those who own it, kill those who, who write it, who share it, who spread it. They, this book has been burned, ripped apart. Our libraries have been burned down. You think about what this book has endured just so we still have it today. It's still to be the number one selling book in the world. It's unbelievable what this book has gone through for us to have it today. I mean, it's lasted some pretty intense moments in human history. It's unbelievable about the longevity of, of the Bible. You know, we do call this um, the, the breath or the word of God. We call it like the spirit of God, the, this book. Maybe you've heard this phrase, but uh, we believe when I say this is inspired by God, it, that comes from a verse in 2 Timothy 3.16, where it simply says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. This word inspiration is just this word theonoustos. Thea, theo, God, noustos, or pneuma, breath, or spirit. Here's what I love about the Bible. We do make a big claim. We say this is the very breath of God. As I breathe and you hear my breath, this is the breath or the spirit of God. I mean, this is unbelievable when you think about this. Where else do we see this, the spirit or the breath of God? We actually see the, the breath of God in Genesis 2. When God creates man, we see the very breath of God. Let me read this to you, Genesis 2, 7. It says, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man, what happened? Man became a living being. Listen, when God breathed into the nostrils of man, man became a living being. When God breathes into something, you better believe it's alive. God breathed his breath into this book. This book is alive. This book is living. The Bible talks about this idea that the word of God is living. It's powerful. It's the very breath of God. I love it. God didn't just breathe in Adam and Adam lay there dead. No, as soon as God breathed into him, Adam was alive. God breathed his breath into this book. This book is a living book. Now we make a big claim. We're saying it's completely unique. We're saying it's completely unified. You know, I want to point this out. Um, Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, had a chapter in the Bible, and he said, can we take the Bible serious? And here's a couple of main points I want everyone to consider when it comes to the Bible. This is an argument I really do believe that kind of shows the uniqueness of Scripture. Here's the first one. The gospel, and stay with me, because this is good stuff right here. This is something you'll use, I'm sure, in conversation. The gospel content is far too counterproductive for it to be legend. One thing we must consider about the Scriptures, the gospel content, like when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's counterproductive. It's not really helpful sometimes. It's far too counterproductive to be legend. Here's what I mean by that. When you read about the disciples constantly arguing, constantly fighting, 
I'm going to be the greatest. No, I'm going to be the greatest. Send mom. Have mom talk to Jesus. When you read about the bickering that's happening, like the pettiness that Jesus is going through Samaria, and the disciples are like, we don't like these Samaritans. Hey, Jesus, should we call on fire from heaven and just consume them? All right, if you were to write a book to believe in Jesus the Messiah, and you are to make this up, would you per- portray yourself in like a Three Stooges format? Like if you and I were to get to them, like, hey, let's like make up this thing, like this awesome thing that people follow us, give us money. We'll do all this stuff, right? We'll make it up. You would not write it in this way where you're constantly fighting, bickering, where you're looking honestly kind of ridiculous throughout all of it. It's, it's too counterproductive to be legend. I mean, again, we've used this argument before around, around Easter, but it's so important. When you think about the resurrection of Jesus and the first eyewitnesses, and the Bible saying the first eyewitnesses were women, if you were to make this up, you would not write this in that day and age and say, yes, the first people to see Jesus were women. That would not hold up in court. That would not be a credible argument. The only reason why you'd write that is because that's how it happens. The point is, the gospel content is far too counterproductive for it to be legend. Just again, you read the gospels, and if you're to make this up, is this how you would write it? And everyone answers, no, this is not how to write it. You know, C.S. Lewis, a guy we know well, wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and other famous books, uh, he actually was, obviously, as you know, he's an atheist, but his, like, background was he studied ancient texts. He, he was, like, basically a textual critic. This is what he would do. He'd read different books, and he'd criticize kind of like how they're written. Is it true? How do we know it's true? He actually writes about this idea. The literary, the literary form of the gospel is too detailed to be legend. What stuck out to C.S. Lewis and made him go from going, I need to relook at the Bible, was he says, no, the, the way it's written, it's too detailed to be legend, legends. Here's his argument. His argument was modern day fiction has a lot of like real life scenarios, but ancient fiction wasn't very realistic. Ancient fiction was kind of far-fetched. Greek gods in the heavens, it just kind of sounded kind of bizarre. But modern day fiction was incredibly realistic and had a, a lot of unique details. That's how we write today. He basically argues that for the gospel writers to write in a detailed way, no one wrote like that. It's almost like they wrote in, the, in the, like the 19th century, in the 20th century. They wrote in a very detailed format. So here's the idea. Uh, why in the scriptures do we see in Mark chapter 4, it says when Jesus went into the middle of the boat to lay down, he laid his head down on a pillow. His argument is, no one wrote like that back then. No one would write, and he laid his head down on a pillow. Like, why would you write that in a story? It adds nothing to the story, unless that's how people saw it and remembered it. Or it says in John 21, when they went fishing, it says they caught 153 fish. Why does John record they caught 153 fish? Probably because that's how they remember it. That's how they saw it. You know, if we went to a party and we're like having fun, I remembered some weird detail. Like, oh, everyone had blue cups. That was so interesting because normally it's red cups and all the cups in everyone's hands were blue. And like, if I were to write that down, that detail, you're like, why does that matter? It doesn't really matter just because of how I remember the story. They wrote down very unique details like that. The idea is that the literary form of the gospel, it's too detailed to be legend. People, again, who study this go, no, there's something really unique about the Bible. Just so different than any other book we've ever seen. It's different than any other ancient text of history. You know, you think about it this way. Jesus trusted the Bible. Something I think we have to consider is Jesus knew the Bible and trusted the Bible. How often does Je- Jesus quotes Deuteronomy more than any other book in the Bible? He quotes Isaiah. Uh, he quotes Zechariah. Jesus recognizes Jonah and Daniel as real people, Adam and Eve as real historical people. Jesus constantly affirms the stories and the people of the Old Testament. He's constantly quoting from Isaiah and the Psalms, and he's quoting from Jeremiah. We see this in the New Testament. Jesus had a high view of Scripture. I love how one author said this, Andrew Wilson. He says, ultimately, our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus and his view of Scripture. Jesus had a high view of Scripture. 
And the idea is, United must consider this. It's really unified. It's really unique. Think about how it's lasted through the ages. And think about this. There's personal power. I mean, what this book has done, people who picked up this book, people who've been slave traders, rapists, murderers, I mean, some of the most awful people on earth have picked up this book or heard this book, and their life has been completely transformed and radicalized. This book has inspired people to build more hospitals and orphanages than any other people group on earth. You think about all the hospitals that we see today, the orphanages we see today, I mean, primarily they come from followers of Jesus. The point is this book has radically changed culture as we know it. It's radically changed individuals as we know it. There's power in this book. If you've read it, hopefully you can say, like I can say, man, reading this book, not just reading it, but knowing it, believing it, giving into it, this book has radically changed my life. It's changed the course of my life, the direction of my, my life, the desires of my life. This is what we see the word of God do. Paul is saying that to the Thessalonians, he goes, hey, you receive this as it is, not just the word of men, but it's the word of God. Here's the second argument. I use unity and uniqueness. Second argument, I'm not going to be able to get too, too much, but just kind of wet the whistle a little bit. This is a book that I think is the biggest, we biggest claim we make is fulfilled prophecy. It's almost hard to pick which prophecy should we point out. Maybe you've heard like that classic argument that Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament. And you're like, where is that? I mean, in Psalm 22 alone, he fulfilled 33 prophecies. We see where he'd be born, to what environment he'd be born. We see how, many, how much money he'd be sold for. We see where he'd be buried or how he'd be buried in a rich man's tomb. I mean, we see so many details from the circumstances of Jesus' life. I thought I'd read this and bring this today. Uh, John MacArthur wrote a book called Why Believe the Bible. If you really do struggle with the idea of the Bible being God's word, grab this. It's not a big read. You can see it. Why Believe the Bible. Uh, I'm going to point out one thing. On page 28, he, he just talks about the uniqueness of prophecy. And here's what he says. So can you bear with me as I read like half a page? All right. We're going to throw up the, the example here. Here's what he points out. He's like, it's very hard to choose from which prophecy uh, we could even just look at. There's so many prophecies. So he pulls out actually quite a few. Here's what he says. Peter Stoner was a scientist and a mathematician, and he utilized what they called the principle of probability. The, this principle holds that if the chance of one thing happening is 1 in m, and the chance of another thing happening is 1 in n, the chance they can both uh, shall happen is 1 in m times n. This equation is used in fixing insurance rates. Stoner asked 600 of his students to apply this principle of probability to the biblical prophecy of the destruction of Tyre. We'll put this destruction of Tyre prophecy up. It's in Ezekiel 26, verse 3 through 16. Here's the seven things. Nebuchadnezzar would take the city. It says by his name, by name. Other nations would help fulfill the prophecy. Tyre would be flattened like the top of a rock. The city would become a place where fishermen would spread their nets. Tyre's stone and timbers would be laid in the sea. Other cities would have great fear because of Tyre's fall. The old city of Tyre would never be rebuilt. These are seven things we see in the prophecy. Using this principle of probability in a conservative manner, the students estimated the chance of all seven events occurring as described at one in 400 million, yet all seven did occur. Stoner students did a similar study on the prophecy that predicted the fall of Babylon. They estimated the chance of the Babylon prophecies occurring at one in 100 billion, but everything stated did come to pass. In this book, he basically goes over prophecy after prophecy that give really unique and specific details. And here's what is written. Here's the manuscripts we have. And we also, before the event happened, and then we can look back and say these things happened. Historically, these things happen. The point is, obviously, as you get into it, the Bible has a lot of unique prophecies that has been fulfilled. It's worth exploring. It's worth studying. In Daniel chapter 9, it actually talks about the exact day Jesus would come into Jerusalem being hailed as the Messiah. The day, you can actually do the math of it. A guy named uh, Sir Alexander Scott did that, and he found out the exact day 
that Jesus would come to Jerusalem, claiming to be the Messiah, and that's what history shows. Just very interesting stuff. Here's the third thing I just want to point out about the Bible, being unique and inspired. This is a kind of a weird argument, but I think it's really profound. The Jewish people. I mean, this is interesting to me. The fact that the Jewish people exist, the fact that there's a nation, that on May 14th, 1948, this country became a nation is unbelievable. I mean, you think about this. Think about this. this they have not had a land or an area for over 2,000 years basically dispersed in 70 AD, like officially, for about 2,000 years all over the world, and then on May 14th, 1948, brought back together. Here's why that's interesting. You, you don't hear of like the Hittites coming together again, or the Perizzites, or the Malachites, right? Like you don't hear of like weird, the Philistines, oh my gosh, the Philistines are back! Like you don't hear about that. Like the Jewish people have remained and had an identity, belief, and been scattered all abroad, abroad and then come back together. That's unbelievable, fulfilling Jeremiah 30, I mean Isaiah 31, it's unbelievable that this, this country, or this people came back together, unified, brought, resurrected a language. I mean, you look at the people and I say, that's a miracle in and of itself. Just the Bible is very unique in what it's proclaimed, what it's described. And Paul is saying, guys, I didn't even have to make all these arguments. You just received it as it was the very word of God. He says you received it. Here's the first point again. Uh, this book is God's word. I think that we could read every book on why the Bible is divine. We could look at just the manuscripts and the history of the manuscripts. We could look at how we have over 25,000 manuscripts that like piece together the whole entire Bible. We could look at the credibility of that. In some ways, it might not change or affect you in any way. There comes a point in time you just need to hear the word of God and say, I mean, this just works. What it says about life, sin, pain, suffering, eternity, meaning, identity, I mean, what this book says, it just works. Like when I hear it and when I really believe into it, it works. And this is what Paul basically says to them. He goes, you received it, you heard it, you believed on it. Let's look at the end of verse 13. He says again, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Number two is this. It works effectively in you if you believe it. This book is God's word. And it works effectively in you if you believe it. Actually, the New King James Version says it this way. We'll put it up here. He says, which also effectively works in you who believe. It works effectively. Everyone say effectively. It works effectively in you who what? In those who believe. Okay, this book works. But for who? to those who believe. Now, yes, I get it. On a very big scale, Isaiah 55 says, God's word will not return void. Like whatever God says, it's gonna happen, absolutely. But on a very personal level, on a transformation level, this book works for those who believe. It effectively works in those who believe. Here's the point. You must believe it. Like you must believe into it. It's not enough for us to claim this is God's word. Do you, like, do you actually believe that and believe into that? Like the word has to always be mixed with faith. The word is like a seed, right? So the, Jesus talks about how the word of God is like a seed. And the planter or the sower went out to sow some seed. He didn't throw out the seed. And here's the thing, it has to be in soil. And when he describes the soil, what kind of soil was it? Was it full of rocks or like thorny? Like what, what kind of soil was it? The idea of soil, think of like your faith. The word of God, the seed, must be mixed with faith. It must be mixed with faith. Actually, it's not effective it doesn't work effectively if it's not mixed with faith. In fact, Josiah, I don't know, you're kind of, is this even biblical? Yes. It's actually Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2. We'll put the verse up here. This is so profound. Listen to this. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2. 
The author says, Indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them. Why? Not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. So let me give you the context in Hebrews 4. The author in Hebrews chapter 4 is saying, listen, the people of Israel could not enter into the promised land. Remember, God's like, hey, take the promised land, it's yours. And they're like, take it, okay? It's yours. Awesome. Take it. There's giants in the land. Doesn't matter, it's yours. No, thank you. Okay, the word was, this is your land. Take it. This is the truth. Enter into the promised land. God's like, do you know it's the promised land? Yeah, we know it's the promised land. Are you going to take it? No way. So here's the idea. The word was there, but it was not mixed with faith. It literally says that phrase. It was not mixed with faith. And I love this, this idea. It actually says the gospel was preached to them as it is to us. That the gospel is actually, even in the Old Testament, in this time, the gospel, the good news that God has something ahead of us, that God has something in store for us, he's saying the gospel is preached to them, but here's the idea. It didn't profit them because it's not mixed with faith. Here's the idea. The gospel's been preached to us. Is it mixed with faith? The good news of Jesus is preached to us. You can hear till you're blown in faith how Jesus died, died for your sins, and rose again. But if you do not mix that with faith, if you do not hear the word of God and believe on it, then it does not work effectively in you. He says this. It did not profit them anything. It didn't profit. The word of God did not profit. Why? It was not mixed with faith. I want this to be really understood. He says to the Thessalonians, he says, this works effectively in you who believe. This will work in those who believe. And I'll say this, believe. You've maybe heard this a lot. I've heard the gospel so much. There came a point in time, like I might share my story, my testimony, like 16 years old, junior in high school, hearing the gospel for the 10 millionth time. And for whatever reason that day, I go, that's it. I'm all in. This is the good news. That, that word I heard had to be mixed with faith. Not just I know this is true or this is a good idea, but it had to be mixed with I'm all in, Jesus. I believe this. I give my life over to this. Here's the thing. God, God speaks. Not just are we listening, but are we believing? I think that the church is guilty of agreeing with the word of God and not believing the word of God. There's a difference between agreeing with the Bible and believing it. You're like, I agree with that. That's a good idea. That's a good way to live. Good principle right there. Okay, I agree with it, but do you believe it? Do you believe into it? He says it must be mixed with faith. It didn't profit. It doesn't work effectively if you don't believe it. They couldn't enter in the promised land. Why? They didn't believe. I think that a lot of us are missing out on what God has for us, or maybe you're missing out on salvation simply because you're not believing it. I say believe on Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe. The word of God must be mixed with faith. I mean, you think about this. So often Jesus would say something, and the idea was like, is the sick person, is the blind person, are they going to believe? Are they going to respond? One of my favorite stories is in Mark chapter 3. In Mark chapter 3, it's the Sabbath day. Jesus goes in the temple. Remember, there's a story of the man with the withered hand. He has a hand that's not working. And the Pharisees are like looking at him like, is he going to heal the man with the, wither, with the withered hand on the Sabbath? You can't do that on the Sabbath day. And Jesus is like, is it good to heal people? And they're like, mm, that's not an answer. And it says this in Mark chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Here, here's the idea. It's simple. Jesus like, stretch it out. He could be like, uh, it's withered. I can't do that. No, no, like stretch it out. He doesn't argue with Jesus. He just stretches out, and his hands are restored. Sometimes we argue with the word of God. No, 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 too good to be true. No way, no way, there's no way. This might apply to someone else, not me. No. Jesus speaks, do it. He speaks, believe it. He speaks, give in to it. I love how one author said about this passage. He says, God's commandments are God's enablements. If God commands it, he's giving me the power to do so. Another way of saying it, I try to write it this way. When we believe and obey God's word, God releases power that works in us to fulfill his purposes. When you believe and obey, God's at work in us to fulfill his purpose. 
See, God speaks, do we believe? Do we enter into it? You know, you, you've heard this a lot. I've talked to so many people. It's like, they'll say, well, seeing is believing. If I see it, then I'll believe it. The scriptures are different, right? The scriptures say, believe and you will see. And it almost frustrates people. Like, no, no, that's like a trick. I don't want to believe and see. It's like, well, this is how faith works. You believe and then you see it. It's actually what we studied earlier this year in 2 Corinthians 3. Paul said this about the Jewish people. Listen to this. He says, To this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Paul, in speaking to the Jewish people, says, you know what? When they read the Bible, there's just a veil. They, they don't understand. Nothing's coming. They, they get nothing out of it. He goes, but once they turn to the Lord, once they trust, once they believe in, that veil is removed. You see, it's not seeing is believing. It's believing is seeing. It's crazy how once you kind of see the world through the lens of the gospel, when you see the world through the lens of their sin and corruption and evil, but yet you see that there's beauty and redemption and restoration and that God is trying to make all things new and we get to partner with God in this story of redemption. To me, it's like nothing else satisfies the questions of, well, where did we come from? Where are we going? Why is there evil? Who, does, who determines what is right or wrong? How do we even get there? Like to me, none of these things satisfy until you see through the lens of the scriptures. My point is, once you believe, you'll see, you go, no, there's nothing else that can satisfy. There's no other answers that can satisfy the biggest questions of life other than through the lens of the gospel of Jesus. See, believing is seen. It leads to that. C.S. Lewis famously said this quote, and it's always misquoted, so I tried to write it down the right way. But C.S. Lewis says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. I love that. I don't just stare at the sun, right? And go, oh, the sun's there. I can stare and just go blind. No. It's not because I see the sun, but because by the sun I see everything else. They see the sun reveals everything. He goes, oh, that's it. Believing is seen. This is that idea behind it. You see, I want to point out, it's, it's one thing to acknowledge that this is the word of God. It's another thing to believe into this, that this is the word of God. You know, D.A. Carson, a well-known pastor and theologian, says, to our shame, we have hungered to be masters of the word much more than we have hungered to be mastered by it. Like a lot of us, myself included, I want to know this. I want to master this. Or to have the mindset of, I want this to master me. I want this to have all authority over me. You see, again, it's not just do you believe this is the word of God, but do you believe into it? Do you give your life over to it? Is it surrendered this way? He says, Thessalonians, you received it. You received it as the word of God. And you who believes, it works effectively in those who believe. Listen again, the word of God must be mixed with faith. It must. Just, it's just a seed on hard ground if not. It must be mixed with faith. They could not enter into the promised land because that truth was not mixed with faith. I think so many people are missing out on eternal life and just the abundance of life because they're not mixing the word of God with faith. It must be mixed with faith. Now let me just say this, it's profitable. The word of God is profitable, it's beneficial, it's effective, it works in you. Paul in 2 Timothy 3, 16 says, scriptures are profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. He goes, it's profitable. Listen, this is effective and profitable in your life. You have to believe it. You can't just know it or agree with it. You have to believe into it. Watch it lead and guide and govern every area of your life. This is so important. Now, I want to bring it to the number three is this. Whenever the word of God is preached or proclaimed, there's always going to be people who try to stop it, just always. Whether it's people or it's the enemy, here's the third point. Number three is this. People try to hinder the message. 
Paul's preaching the gospel. They're hearing the message. Remember the context. Paul was only able to be there three weeks because of persecution. He had to flee Thessalonia because they're being run out of the city. And so Paul goes on to say, why don't we just pick up again in verse uh, 14. Verse 14, Paul says, You brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. He says, listen, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but the wrath has come upon them at last. Let me just kind of point out the big picture of this. Paul is constantly being cha- like chased and pursued and persecuted by his Jewish brethren. Paul was a Jew who used to persecute the church. Now he's a believer in Jesus. He's a Jew who believes in Jesus. His Jewish brothers do not like that. Some people actually vowed. They said, we're not going to eat food until this man is dead. All right, they took Paul, they like, Paul's a threat to them. Paul's a threat to everything. So they're constantly persecuting him and the people around him. I point this out because Paul is obviously an, not anti-Semitic. People have used this passage and be like, look it, he's saying the Jews killed Jesus and the prophets. Paul's being very anti-Semitic here. That doesn't make sense because Paul's a Jew uh, and he believes in Jesus who's a Jew. That's not the take on this. Paul is just more pointing out and saying, listen, wherever I go, there's just countrymen, my own countrymen, these fellow Jews who are persecuting me, persecuting you. And here's the big phrase I want to point out to you. This is the issue, he says. They're hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. Can we throw that up there? He says, they're hindering us from speaking. They don't want us to speak. They don't want them to be saved. Whenever the message, whenever the word of God is preached or communicated, there's going to be people who try to hinder the message. I mean, maybe in your own life, you've experienced that. You know, I think about when our church first got planted here. Like within the first few months, you know, we had a sign outside and this atheist guy saw it and started writing the principle and started posting pictures of my family on Facebook and being like, we got to get this church out of this school, separation of church and state. And everyone's like, what are you talking about? But I remember like when, once we got here, immediately faced with people trying to kick us out. Still to this day, I mean, right before the whole pandemic, he's emailing the principal, remove that sign. I saw that you put it back up, right? It's funny, like, people have nothing better to do with their time. But whenever the word of God is out there, there's always going to be people who try to hinder the message. There's always going to be that. You know, we saw a, a young man here a couple years ago uh, come to faith, believe in Jesus, you know, Jewish background, and it's so cool because for him, he's like, man, Jesus is the Messiah. I, didn't, I know I'm Jewish, but I never even understood or appreciated my Jewish heritage. Like, we did some of the festivals, we did some of the things, but I never really appreciated it. Now I see that Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus, and it's so cool to kind of hear him talk about it. Unbelievable. And he told his mom when he got saved, he pulled his mom aside and said, Mom, you know, I want to tell you something. I became a believer in Jesus. And before he, like, told her, he said, Mom, can we talk? And so he goes, Mom, I want you to know I'm a believer in Jesus. And her response to her was, gosh, I, I thought this was going to happen. I was, I'd rather have you this today come out and tell me, Mom, I'm a homosexual, than tell me, Mom, I'm a follower of Jesus. Her response was, I'd rather have you come out as gay than come out as a Christian. That was her response. He's just obviously been shocked by that going, like, wait, you'd rather have me come out in this way rather than me coming out as being a Christian? Yes, absolutely. My, my point is, whenever the gospel message is preached, people are not going to like it. People are going to try to hinder the message. I mean, it, Paul says this pretty clearly in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. Here's what Paul says. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Listen, don't be surprised when you preach the gospel. Don't be surprised that when you preach the gospel, people will not like it. You know, there's all sorts of narratives about how to do life, how to do marriage, how to do identity, how to do sexuality. There's all these different kind of narratives on how to live life. As soon as you say, hey, live for Jesus, follow Jesus, repent of your sins, 
and like follow Jesus. Jesus, I love about him, challenges everyone and everything. He challenged religious people. He challenged progressive people. He challenged everyone. The point is people get offended by Jesus. Jesus even said, blessed are those who are not offended because of me. That word offended is this word in the Greek, a scandalon, which just means to scandalize. He goes, blessed are those who are not scandalized because of me. Some people are offended or scandalized by Jesus. He said, no, don't be that. You're blessed if you're not scandalized by that. I love that Jesus calls everyone to repentance. It's not one person, one people group. It's everyone everywhere to repentance. And Jesus goes, hey, you're blessed if you're not offended because of that. Know this. In the last days, Paul says, and we can like break this verse down. Notice this. He goes, people will not endure sound teaching. They're not going to like that. They have itching ears. There's going to be something we want to, just tell us what we want to hear. Don't tell us something that will disagree with culture. Don't tell us something that we don't like. No, tell us what we want to hear. And there comes a point in time we say, sorry, like Jesus challenges everyone, every worldview, religious or not. He challenges every worldview ever. And it, we're, we can't just say, you know what, let me just find something else that will kind of suit my beliefs, my passions. Here's what I just hold to you. Like I try to hold my own beliefs. God, what is it that I'm believing that just disagrees with your word? What is it right now that in my mind or my life I'm believing that is actually counter to your word? God, how do you view uh, like just people? God, what's, what's your view on the immigrant? How should I treat them? How should I love them? Where is there a, a, something in my heart that's not biblical here? God, how do I view this people group that might differ from me or hate me? God, how, how should I love them? How should I respond to them? My, my point is, sooner or later, obviously, God is going to disagree with everyone, and God calls all of us to repentance. And I'm very thankful that, you know, our hope is not to just say, hey, what is popular in culture? Let's just preach that. Our hope is to say, hey, here's what God's word says. Let's do our best to interpret it and apply it and live it out and believe into it. That, you know what, we're going to get it wrong here and there. We're going to ask for grace and repentance. But we're going to do our best to say, God, we want to know you. We want to know your word. We want to do our best to live it out and apply it. But there's always going to be people who try to stop that message. This is what Paul is experiencing. He says they're hindering us from speaking so that people can get saved. That was the issue. Number four is this. Not just people try to hinder the message, but Satan tries to hinder the message. Number four, Satan tries to hinder the message. Look, if you would, again at verse uh, 17. He says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. So not only do people hinder the message, but he goes, you know what, I couldn't even get to you. Satan hindered me from getting to you. Now, here's the thing. I, I just want to point out this way. Um, it's, cr- it's kind of interesting, our view of Satan at times. You know, we sometimes think like Satan himself is maybe dealing directly with us when it's probably not just like spiritual forces of wickedness, Paul would also say. But it's, sometimes we can give too much credit to Satan or maybe not enough credit to Satan. We give too much credit to the spiritual realm or maybe not enough credit to the spiritual realm. We do got to understand that Satan is trying to oppose the work and plans of God. Paul is like, I wanted to get to you, but I had to know that Satan was opposing me. He was hindering me. I want you to be, just be very aware that whenever you try to get the message of Jesus out, know that there's going to be spiritual authorities and powers that do not like that and want to stop that. I, I don't know how many Christians I've talked to where it's like once they start taking their faith incredibly serious, then it's like I, at night, I'm just like being haunted by thoughts, ideas. I just can't get this out of my mind. I feel like I'm overwhelmed by anxiety and fear. All these new kind of emotions came upon me. What is that? Well, you started giving yourself over to Jesus and the word of God, and Satan wants nothing to do with that. I love actually what John Piper says about this verse. He says, Satan hates evangelism and discipleship. And he will throw every obstacle he can in the way of missionaries and people with a zeal for evangelism. He's going to do whatever he can to stop the word of God from going out. Actually, in Daniel 10, Daniel is fasting and praying for 21 days, right? And he's begging, like, praying for God. God, give me a vision for my people. 
And if you remember the story, this angel appears to him and says, God has heard your prayers. Dan t- Daniel chapter 10, verse 12 says, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. And then this angel says, I was in this battle with the prince of Persia. Michael the archangel had to come and deliver me. You're like, what is that story? That story was, you know what, there's an angel with a message for Daniel, but prince of Persia, most believing that was Satan himself, was prohibiting this angel from getting the message to Daniel. Here's the point. The point is, there was a demonic realm hindering the gospel message. And that still happens to this day. That happened in Paul's day. Satan hindered us. I couldn't get there to you. Um, one more thought on this. This has just been Satan's job from the very beginning. As soon as God speaks, Satan opposes the message, tries to twist the message, change the message, challenge the character and heart of God. Just know that as soon as you give yourself over to the word of God, there's going to be opposition in some format. There's this. This is how it works. It's Daniel or it's Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. It, the angel or the serpent said, has God said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? It's Satan going, no, God didn't say that. Did God really say you can't eat of every tree? As soon as God speaks, Satan casts doubt. He casts opposition in some format. But I want to encourage you with this, because I love Paul's perspective of Satan. Paul had a really good perspective of Satan. It's Romans chapter 16, verse 20. Can you just listen to this? I've read this before, but it's so powerful. Paul says, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. I love Paul. Paul's like, you know what? He's writing this whole letter to the Romans, and he goes, and you know what? The God of peace, of peace, not war, but the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly, shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. I just love that. Paul's like, you know what? God's going to crush Satan under your feet. Actually, we know that Jesus on the cross, on the cross, in a sense, stomped on Satan's head. He fulfilled Genesis 3. That Jesus bruised his heel on the cross, meaning he died, but yet he crushed the head of Satan on the, on the cross. That Jesus won ultimately then. And he goes, you know what? The same way Jesus crushed Satan under his feet, you too are going to crush Satan under your feet shortly. And the grace of Jesus be with you, amen. Meaning, you have not lost. It might feel like at different times you lose a battle. It might feel like opposition's working. But we know who won the war. And we know how the war wins. How the war ends. And we know where Satan is cast forever. And I want you to know that God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. What a great verse. Just wake up tomorrow morning and say that. The God of peace will crush Satan under my feet shortly. Paul says that. That's scripture, man. Believe that. Believe that you're, you have victory in Christ Jesus. Paul's like, I want to get to you. Satan hindered it. He might have won this moment, but no, he didn't win the end. Because here's how Paul ends. It's verse 19 and 20. Paul ends this way. He says, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? For you are glory and joy. Listen, the end is great to those who believe. Here's what Paul does. Paul's like, you know what? When Jesus comes back, he talks about Jesus coming. When Jesus comes again, you are a crown. You're what we're going to rejoice in. This word crown is the word Stephanos. It just means the victor's crown. He goes, you're, you're a victor's crown. You, you're, you're, you're the proof for us that we've won. Because look at the change in your life. He goes, you know what? I have this, this joy, this glory. I'm rejoicing when Jesus comes because I see the change in you. I honestly believe that in every parent, in every pastor, in every follower of Jesus, the greatest joy is knowing your family, your church, 
will stand righteous before the coming of Jesus. I think the thing that I want more than anything for the exchange families is to know that every single one of you will be in heaven with Jesus because you place your faith in Jesus, you trusted in Jesus. To know that you can stand before God and God says you're innocent because the blood of Jesus Christ covered your sins. I think the greatest feeling ever for us is when we get to heaven, like, everyone's here, we made it. Like, this that idea of, like, you're our joy, our crown, our rejoicing. Paul has to point ahead, obviously, because he goes, you know what, you've suffered, I've suffered. Uh, I got kicked out of your city. I miss you guys. I love you guys. I'm not with you face to face. God knows how much I want to be with you. Satan opposes us. People oppose us. But you know what? You're a crown of rejoice. We know how the story ends. Again, the Bible constantly does this. It reminds us of our mortality, but it also points us to our future. It says, you know what? This is the end of all, that we're going to die, but you know what? The future is that we have a hope that does not disappoint, that we will be with Jesus and we'll be with Jesus together. And Paul's like, you're a crown of rejoicing. Listen, the end is great to those who believe. If you believe this message, as the Thessalonians did, it works effectively in you. And there's no greater joy than seeing your kids or your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ walking with the Lord. And this is what Paul is saying. Listen, here's my hope. I just want to end with worship and just kind of end with that vision of eternity. That we take a moment and say that Jesus, my passion is to see people around me, people you're sitting next to, people in your small group, people in your alpha course, people that you're just doing life with. They say, I just want to see you with Jesus. And the only way to be there is to believe on Jesus and you'll be saved. Trust in Jesus. Give your life to Jesus. I want to take some time as we kind of just hit the end of this, like, you know, this season, right? We're kind of hitting like holiday seasons, we Thanksgiving, Christmas, the new year before we know it. Let's just be in prayer that God, that you would save those around us. This is a great time to pray for your family members, your friends. God, bring them to Christmas Eve service. Bring them to this, this season. Let us walk worthy. We want to see this crown of rejoicing. We want to see them in heaven with you. So why don't we just end by worshiping, praying, and just getting that vision of eternity. So would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Let's worship. Father, we just want to thank you that you've given us your son, Jesus. You've given us your word. That, God, you're speaking. You're a God who speaks. That we're not here alone. We're not here without revelation. God, we're not here wondering what do we need to do next, that we can just rest Jesus in your, your word, that it is finished, that Jesus, you paid for our sins on that cross, and that by your stripes we are healed. Jesus, we believe in you, we believe on you, we surrender. God, I just ask that everyone in this place could experience that abundance of life that only you can give Jesus, that they might know they have life everlasting in the finished work of the cross and that they might have a daily abundance of life because of what you've done. Father, I just ask that we would be people who don't just agree with your word, but believe it. We believe it, Jesus. We thank you for it. God, you say stretch out your hand, we'll stretch out our hands. We won't argue. We won't fight it. We'll just believe into it. God, we want to pray for, for again, our family members, our friends, our neighbors, people at Alpha, people that have come a couple of times Jesus, we want to ask that you would pursue their heart, that they'd be born again, that you'd speak to them, that Jesus, um, we would just repent and believe on you. God, that everyone in this room would just have this assurance, this confidence, this, this knowledge, this truth that's ringing in their heart that they are yours. God, we thank you. We just want to have this vision of eternity, God. Just pray that everyone in this place would know you. Everyone not here, God, that we've just been praying for would come to know you. So Jesus, we just want to thank you this morning. Praise you, God. Thank you again for this time we get. In your name, Jesus. Amen.